0: please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54. There is probably no author that has impacted modern storytelling more than Charles Dickens. He invented the paperback, he invented the cliffhanger, and he invented serialized storytelling, and he did all of that in one day. Many believe that his magnum opus is the book Great Expectations. And Great Expectations is filled with characters who had great plans and major aspirations only to see them dashed to bits. Every single character in the book is an over-the-top image of broken dreams. Just to provide a single example, consider Miss Havisham. As a young woman, Miss Havisham met a man, and she planned to be married. She was a wealthy woman, and she was very excited about her wedding day. But the morning of the wedding, as she was putting on her wedding dress she received a letter from her fiancé informing her not only was he not going to arrive for the wedding and not only was he not going to marry her, he was also robbing her and that their entire engagement had been a scam. Miss Havisham's response was to never change out of her wedding dress for the rest of her life. And she stopped all of the clocks in her house at 8.40, which was the time at which she received the letter. And she never allowed anyone to remove the wedding cake from the center of her dinner table until it was eaten away by bugs and spiders over the course of many years. She even adopts a little girl, just so she can raise her to hate men and break their hearts. Her expectations were eviscerated, and her heart was forever broken. This summer, we're going to complete our third part of our journey through the book of Isaiah. Now, if you are new to the church, then you can go to our website and you can find all of the sermons covering chapter one all the way through 53. I cannot tell you how excited I am to be back in this book and to conclude this book, what a wonderful book of prophecy this is. But just for context, let me remind you of some of the very basic and foundational elements of the setting of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet sent by God to the southern kingdom of Judah. His prophecies were given roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ. Now Isaiah prophesied during the days of four kings of the southern kingdom, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, two of which were considered good kings, and one of which was, uh, started out okay and ended up poorly, and one of which was terrible. Uh, this summer, we're going to set our sights on the conclusion of the book, starting in chapter 54 and going through 66. Now, in that section, there are two main pieces that we're going to consider. 54 through 59 are mainly aimed at instructions for righteous living. Chapter uh, 60 through 66, rather, are mainly focused on the rule of Jesus as our Messiah King. Now, I would ask that you please follow along in our text as we read it today. But instead of reading all through the text at once, we are going to break it up this morning. So I'd ask that first you would please join me in prayer that the Lord would use this entire summer in Isaiah to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the King in the book of Isaiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have to come again to your word and to hear from you, to incline our ear to you, to consider the words on this page with the words that are from your mouth Lord, we thank you that you have delivered them to us, and we consider the source of them. We consider that they are from your heart of love towards your people, and we ask today that your people would respond appropriately, that the Holy Spirit would cause our hearts to be aflame with love for Jesus Christ. We ask today that as we consider various applications from this passage, that you would help us to receive what we are called to receive, and that we would live out what we are called to live out. We acknowledge, God, that we cannot and we will not apply these things, that we will not live these things unless you do a work in us today. And so we pray, God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, transform us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Isaiah chapter 54 is made up of three extended metaphors. There are three pictures that he is painting here for us to look at and for us to consider what is going on in Israel, in Judah particular. First, we consider a barren woman and then a rejected wife and then a destroyed city. And each of these pictures are the picture of a desperate state in Judah. However, these pictures are also pictures of a world that is lost without God's salvation. And one of the most amazing things that we see in this chapter is how all of these desolate and ruined things are given a radical reversal, a transformation because of the grace of God. Our approach is going to be to consider each of these metaphors in turn, and then we're going to apply each one of them in turn. So we begin with the first metaphor, one of a barren woman. Look with me again to verse 1. It says, Sing, O barren woman who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord." Now, we already arrive at a place that demands thoughtful consideration, so let's pause and consider what it means to be barren. To be barren means that a woman is unable to have children. I think you know that. And it's likely that you have walked alongside somebody in your life who has struggled with fertility. And if so, you know the immense heartache that comes with that. You know the challenge. You know the struggle. You know the disappointment, how it seems to compound month after month, and maybe your wife has battled with infertility. Or maybe you personally have battled with infertility. Or maybe you've experienced the tears and frustration of others who have battled with infertility. I think of Samuel's mother in the Old Testament who prayed and pleaded for a child, and she did so so emotionally that when Eli comes out and looks at her, he thinks that she's completely plastered. He thinks she's wasted. Why? Because she is so devastated over the empty womb Now imagine that on top of all of this brokenheartedness, this natural emotional suffering, imagine adding a cultural understanding that barrenness also means that you are cursed by God. Every year that goes by, people are looking at you, and they are assuming that there is something wrong with you. Not just something that they would look at you and say, there's a biological problem. They would say, there is an issue with your relationship with God. And they would consider you to be less valuable than those with children. Every side glance at you would strike another blow at your heart. This would be devastating. Barren people do not rejoice in this culture. What you are going to see with all of these metaphors today is a radical reversal. This woman who was barren, oh, she is commanded to sing. He says, Sing, O barren woman. She is commanded to rejoice. Why? Because the one who was barren is now expecting. She is promised an immense family. Now I want to pause and just say something to those who have experienced this in their lives or who are experiencing this in a physical way in their lives. I want you to know that God is gracious and God is good, and sometimes God does open the womb, and sometimes He does not. But in either circumstance, He loves you, and He is for you, and He has provided community with you here at the church. And whether you can have your own biological children or not, you have a family of faith around you where you can love children all the time. But I want to consider now what He says about this on a spiritual level. Look to verses 2 through 5. He says, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood will be remembered no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Now here's the question. Who is this woman that he is speaking to? He is saying, you need to go ahead and start building a bigger tent, guys. You know, when um, we had our first child we were in a small one-room apartment and theoretically we could still live in that apartment with our six children but it would be challenging it would be probably a little bit miserable we already had difficulties with our neighbor who were only separated from us through a very thin door and every time the Asaph would cry as a baby, they would walk around and stomp in their heels at three o'clock in the morning to tell us of their displeasure. It was difficult to be in this tiny, cramped Queen's basement apartment with one baby. And he says, Look, you've got to start building a bigger house, guys. You need to expand your tent, expand those cords, expand that, that tarp. You need to start planning for a big family because you're going to have a big family, one that fills the entire globe. But who is he talking about? Who is it that will literally spread out throughout the entire earth? Thankfully, Paul gives us an interpretive key in the book of Galatians to help us understand this verse. So I really need you. I really need you to pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. So much of what you are going to hear this summer is borne out in what I'm about to explain. Most prophecies in Isaiah have both a near fulfillment in the lifetime of Isaiah or in the near future, And then they have a distant fulfillment that is either at the time of Jesus Christ's first appearance or his second coming. And this passage is certainly about Israel. It is certainly about how they have failed to produce a spiritual offspring. They were told to go and announce to the nations the goodness and the glories of God, and they did not do it. And he says, You have never had any spiritual offspring. And certainly he is speaking to them, both of their families that will hear the gospel. Anytime there's a revival in Israel, it seems to be a one-generation revival and the next generation has forgotten. They don't transfer onto the next generation their belief in the Lord or their trust of him. But he says, you are going to have children. Likely, this is talking about when they are going into exile and there is a massive revival that lasts for 400 years as the people look forward to and trust in the coming Messiah. Now, they have Failed to give this good news, but there is a, a near fulfillment that they will eventually expand. But there is also a future fulfillment. So please look at the screen with me and see how Paul helps us to understand the fulfillment of this promise in the new covenant. Galatians chapter 4, verse 25 says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, I expect that all of you obviously know exactly what all of those things mean, right? No, I don't expect that at all. Do you understand what he's saying? He's looking at Jerusalem in his day, and he's, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is comparing them to Hagar. Who is Hagar? he is the illegitimate wife of Abraham. He is the one who... "...has a son that must be cast out, and both of them are removed, and both of them are considered to be slaves, and both of them are in bondage with their children." In other words, those who are still following the system of Judaism are not free, they are slaves. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to what? To the present Jerusalem. Paul is looking at Jerusalem in his day and saying, that kind of religion, that Judaism, that is slavery." that is bondage, that is not freedom. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. That's a weird thing to say. Now, I get that the Russians call it the motherland, but that's a weird thing to say that a city is your mother. But what city is he talking about? He's talking not about an earthly city, but a heavenly city. The Jerusalem above is free. And he says, we who have followed Christ have been born from above. We are of that city. We are not descendants from Judaism. We are not a just kind of more New Testament version of Judaism. We are from above. That religion, that religion that still exists, that many people on this island are following, does not lead to heaven. It is not from heaven any longer. It has been a rejected form. It is no longer a way to reach the Father in any sense. The offspring of the heavenly city are those who follow Christ. So what does this have to do with Isaiah 54, you might be asking? Because it is right here in Galatians chapter 4, in the very next verse that Paul reaches all the way back into Isaiah chapter 54. He grabs the verses that we just read and he pulls them forward to explain and to underscore what he has just said. For it is written, verse 27, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So stick with me here. I want to help you connect the dots. What is Paul saying? He is saying that the fulfillment of Isaiah 54 is the expansion of the church. Now, this is really helpful in understanding this chapter. These three metaphors that are being presented, they are all pictures of Israel, yes. They are all pictures of their desolate state, spiritually speaking. Now, listen, these people were kind of at the higher end of their time as a kingdom. They had kings that mostly were relatively wealthy they had expanded borders now during hezekiah's reign there was a big war with sennacherib that you can learn about but for the most part they were doing okay financially economically they were doing okay socially spiritually he says you are a train wreck and now he says to them through these three metaphors that god wants to restore them he wants a radical reversal for them yes that is certainly true however This has a far fulfillment fulfilled within the church. These metaphors are being presented as pictures of how God is taking Gentiles, people like most of us in this room, who were outside of the promise, and he is going to bring them in, and he is going to give you, and he is going to give me a hope and a future. And as we walk through these chapters in Isaiah, this is really helpful to understand. In fact, moving forward, the heavenly city, when he talks about that city above, Not Jerusalem as it is here on earth, but that heavenly city which is our mother. He will usually use the term Zion. I want to give you one application from this first metaphor that we have considered. It is to sing. Now, Ray Ortland refers to Isaiah 51 verse 4, and he says that it is one of the most disobeyed commands in the Bible. He says to sing. He is commanding that we rejoice for joy using our tongue and our lips and our words. We are to sing to him because he has taken on life and given us life. He has given us new life from above. We are to sing. Now, I think it's important that whether you feel like it or not, you sing. A Christian who refuses to sing with gusto is a Christian who has forgotten the grace of God. It's not just laziness, it's not just inattentiveness. It's not just tiredness, it's rebellion, because to sing is not a suggestion but a command. So whether it's your style or not, whether it's your favorite song or not, whether you feel like it or not, whether your emotions are stirred or not, God commands that we sing to him for what he has done. Now, just as a side note, I'm not going to dig into this. Every single one of God's commands that he gives to us are good for us. It's like when I tell my children, you do need to eat your vegetables. I do that because I know that that will produce life in them. So God saying, sing, knows that it is good for you. It causes your life to be bettered. God's commands are good. I love how John Calvin explains the need to sing. He says it this way. He says, the church is the place where the gospel is preached. And the gospel is good news. And good news makes people happy. And happy people sing. Consider the good news of your salvation. If you come in and you say, oh man. Ah, Praise and glorify our God. Ah, I'll wait to the next song. No, don't do it. Join in. Jump in. Sing for joy with gusto because God is worthy. But also because God commands it. Consider your desperate state before Jesus redeemed you from the pit. And then you will sing. If only you knew the extremity of the salvation you have received, you couldn't help it. You would be exploding with music you would be exploding with rejoicing in fact forever it says we are going to be encircling the throne of jesus christ and singing and singing and singing and i looked at that as a kid and thought man this is going to be terrible i'm going to get so bored of it i'm going to get tired of it but why will we not get tired of it why will we never cease to praise it's because we will realize exactly how worthy he is and how much he has done to redeem us so brothers and sisters let us sing The second metaphor that we find is that of a rejected wife, and we find that in verses 6 through 10. Now, I will just preface this by saying the way that husbands and wives function in our society today is quite different than the way they functioned in the days that Isaiah was writing. With that in mind, consider, starting in verse 6, he writes, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth When she is cast off, says your God, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This passage is similar to the previous with a few notable differences. First, let's talk about the imagery. Have you ever heard a guy say, well, I'm going to be sleeping on the couch tonight. First of all, that's not a good situation maritally, and you should talk to somebody. But secondly, uh, that is a very relatively new development in history of husband-wife relationships. In the year 700 B.C., or roughly thereabout, when Isaiah was writing this, it was not the wife's tent or her bed. And so it would have been the wife sleeping on the couch if there was a marital issue. He would force her out. She would not force him out. And in this case, the Lord is telling Judah he is doing just that to her. I'm kicking you out of the bedroom. You're not sleeping in here right now. I'm removing you because you have spurned me. Particularly, he subtly highlights the fact that they have been adulterous with other idols, with idols of the surrounding nations and with idols of the heart. And he says, You have done what is wicked, and therefore I have been angered at you. So he says, So I'm hiding my face from you. I'm casting you away from me, but only briefly, only for a moment. Now, the good news is, even in doing that, God was not angered like you and I get angry. His emotions do not run like our emotions. When God does that, he does that to display the great evil of that that person's sin, or in this case, the nation of Judah's sin. But he does so knowing that in just a moment, he's going to show compassion. He says, look, I'm going to be angry with you, but I'm going to return to you, and I'm going to call you back to me. In other words, he's pointing now to Isaiah's removal from jerusalem their removal from judah and they are going to be cast out temporarily they're going to go away but then he's going to welcome them back with open arms which is exactly what we see with ezra and nehemiah as they are returning to israel and rebuilding this declaration is to israel a promise that they are not ultimately going to be destroyed he says this is kind of like that situation with noah you remember i destroyed the whole earth and then i said look i promise i'm not going to do that again I'm not going to display my anger at you again. I'm telling you, I am not going to be bitter with you forever. Look, I'm going to cast you out briefly, but I want you to know that when you return, I'm going to wrap my arms around you, and I'm not going to let go. He had not abandoned them to their own devices. He had simply said, I'm going to turn my face away from you for a moment even before the exile arrived, God is a preparing their hearts by reminding them that he's not going to turn away from them forever. Like a loving husband with open arms to his unfaithful wife, the Lord invites them to return and to be welcomed. And this is a shocking reversal. Because generally, in those days, people did not get divorced. And perhaps, perhaps if you are from another culture, you moved here to the United States, or perhaps if you remember Many years ago in the culture of the United States, even if there was infidelity within a marriage, oftentimes they would stay married, but the relationship had been transformed. It was not what it was before. And here he is saying, look, I'm not only welcoming you back in, I am welcoming you back in as if that never happened, as if I loved you exactly as I did on the very first day we were married. He is welcoming them back in with open arms. And he says in this shocking reversal That although you were rejected, now you are welcome. She was cast out, now she's invited. God was angry with her, now he is displaying his compassion. And brothers and sisters, I have good news for you, that if you are in Christ, then his countenance towards you is always pleased. When he looks at you, he sees his own son. You will never be rejected. You will never be cast out. However, it is certainly possible for you to experience the feeling of distance from the Lord due to your own sin. Now, perhaps you, like the people of Judah, are caught in some kind of a cycle of never-ending rebellion. Maybe you're worshiping the idol of money or sex or entertainment or materialism. Or maybe you're acting as though you're bored of God or disinterested in His Word or disinterested in communicating with Him in prayer. And maybe, just maybe, due to these kinds of things you have found yourself feeling distant from God. Well, good news, he hasn't moved. And the words of verse 10 are perfectly true and worthy of your attention if you feel that way today. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Here's our second application for the day. Repent. Now, if you're acting like unfaithful Judah, look at the Savior. See his love. See his compassion. See the true fear of the Lord in your heart. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means when you see his right authority, his right power, you don't run away from him. It means that you run to him. Look, if you're running away from him, it it means that you think you are powerful enough to escape him. It means that you actually think that you are stronger than he is, that you could run faster than he can, that you could somehow escape from his judgment or his wrath. You cannot. So if you are an unbeliever today, I call on you to repent and turn to him for the first time. Run to Jesus because he has open arms for everyone who hears the good news and believes it. He has open arms for one who repents. He has open arms that he welcomes in those who are wicked, those who have been defiled. And he says, I will love you with a never-ending, unbreakable love. But I also want you to see how he's speaking about this to those of us who are believers. He uses this beautiful illustration. He says, hey, do you see that mountain over there? Now, can you imagine that something so massive and so sturdy just one day Getting up and moving. It's like you wake up in the morning and you're used to like walking out. I know this is not Long Island, but imagine that you grew up in the Rockies and you're used to having this massive mountain outside of your back door and you walk out one morning expecting with your coffee, you know, to look up at that beautiful mountain and you walk up and it's just gone. It's just missing. It just fell away or decided I'm going to take a vacation. That's crazy talk. It does not happen. And God says, if you think that's wild, you think that's insane, you think those mountains are long-lasting, my compassion and my love will never disappear. It will never fade. Obviously, this picture of unfailing love for his people is one that should cause any of us who are caught in sin to run to him and repent. If you are harboring anything in your heart or hiding anything in the darkness... Let it go and give it to him. Run to him because he is ready to greet you with open arms of compassion. The third and final metaphor that we see here in Isaiah chapter 54 is that of a destroyed city. Listen to how Isaiah describes this city in the first line. He calls it, Oh, afflicted one, storm tossed, and not comforted. Now, this is a city that has experienced. Immense devastation. Yet, as we see here, God is going to decorate it with all kinds of lavish jewels of highest value. He says, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires, and I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. Now, I'm not going to go into a description of all of these precious stones or how they are represented throughout Scripture, If you've ever played the game Bejeweled on your phone, then you can imagine these bright, shiny jewels. And he says, of these things, I'm going to use those precious stones like they are common building materials. The wall, the floor, the foundation stones, the pinnacle, the stuff that's usually made out of the cheapest possible stuff like dirt and rocks, I'm going to make those things out of jewels for you, radiantly shining with splendor. Okay? What's his point? Well, God promises that he is going to be the one that beautifies them. He is going to be the one that gives them value. This illustration is a reminder that they have no beauty or wealth because of their innate nature or their own effort. They are made beautiful by the intentional outpouring of God's extravagant love. He says, I will make you beautiful. I will decorate you. Just like the prodigal son was not only welcomed back with a hug, He was not only embraced by his father, his dad says, listen, go get the best robe out of my closet and go get my ring and put it on his finger. Go kill the fatted calf. We are celebrating right now. He lavished love on him in an extravagant, prodigal way. Now You and I are welcomed by God and given treasures far greater than any earthly wealth. Isaiah continues and says exactly what some of those treasures look like. All your children will be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children in righteousness you shall be established you shall be far from oppression you shall not fear and from terror <clears throat> and far from terror for it shall not come near you this may have a familiar ring to it if you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah because as Jeremiah writes of the new covenant many of the things he says of the new covenant feel very much like what we just read This beginning part sounds like the new covenant that God is going to speak and he is going to promise to write the law on the heart and that every single child of the kingdom, that does not mean every offspring of a Christian, but every true Christian in the family of God, that they would all have peace with him and that they would have righteousness. And he continues in verse 15, if anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Look, the world is going to seek to produce weapons to destroy the church. They have been doing that since its inception. And they will not succeed. Now, I like the way that I memorized this verse when I was a kid. That no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Now, you, the question here might be asked though. well, What about Stephen? Like, they didn't even have to work very hard on those weapons. They just picked up rocks and threw them at him. And he died. And, 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 and don't take that lightly. What about, what about Peter? They put two pieces of wood together. And they crucified him upside down. Well, that worked. He died. And what about Paul? This man, they just took a piece of metal and put it on the end of a stick and they chopped his head off with it, with a sword. That's not that complex. They fashioned a weapon against it and it appears as though it succeeded. It appears as though they won. The enemies look like they are the ones prospering because Christians throughout the history of the world had suffered and they have died at the hands of brutal enemies. If you think a cross and a sword are are bad enough, there are immense tortures and brutal forms that have been laid out against Christians even today. But their weapons can't really harm the church. And why not? Because God's promises, they are infinite and they are eternal. And there is nothing that finite, ephemeral enemies of the church can threaten. As has often been said, you can't threaten a Christian with eternity. Which brings us to our third application, Have a fearless faith. Too many Christians have gone on for so long hiding. We're happy to loudly express the truth in here, but then we're terrified to do it out there. Why are we so quick to shut down? Why are we so quick to, like a turtle, pull back into our shell? Why don't we have holy boldness to live out our salvation for the Lord? Because of a combination of factors, I'll just mention two. First, because we believe that we have things that are too valuable to lose. Maybe they're material possessions. Maybe that's our dignity or our reputation or our friends or our jobs or our lives. We're afraid. We're afraid to lose. And secondly, we don't believe that we have something valuable to gain by actually doing what God has called us to do. Brothers and sisters, we have that all upside down. But there's nothing to fear. Fear. You can openly stand firm because God is on your side, and if he is for you, there is no one, not even all people combined, who could stand against you. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. You have nothing to lose. The only possible option is victory. So be bold. Live out your faith loudly. Let the beauty of the gospel shine forth from your life every single day. Amen? Lastly, before we close, I just want to share with you two final applications that go hand-in-hand with one another and that fit along with everything that we've covered so far in this chapter today. Uh, Most sermons that I preach and that I will preach are forgotten, usually by Sunday afternoon. One time I preached on a Sunday, and then that next Friday I was at the youth group of that church, and the youth minister asked the students, Just name one of the three points that the pastor gave on Sunday. None of them could do it. But I kind of expected that, to be honest, and that's not the embarrassing part. The embarrassing part was I was sitting there, and I had preached the sermon on Sunday, and I couldn't do it. My own sermon was so forgettable, I didn't remember it. Now, I promise that I I am never going to try to preach a forgettable sermon, but most of them will be forgotten. I, I like how Tim Challey says that sermons are kind of like meals and how he doesn't remember the overwhelming majority of meals that he has eaten in his life, but he's glad that he ate them. He's glad because they sustained him, they made him grow. Well, I'm glad that you hear sermons. I'm glad that you are growing from them. But there are occasional sermons that God uses to shake the entire world. Could anyone here tell me the most impactful sermon that was ever preached in the English language? Does anyone have a guess at what I think that might be? Now, Sinners in the Hand of the Angry God is the answer that I anticipated. But it's not the one that I would choose, actually. Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God was an incredible sermon that impacted this nation through the Great Awakening in an incredible way. Most people would probably answer that way who have an understanding of church history. However, there is another that I think had a far greater impact on a global scale. In May of 1792, William Carey, the father of modern missions, preached a sermon that shook the world. It's come to be known the Deathless Sermon, and it's called that because even though there were no notes taken or records of it, there are lines from it that have never been forgotten. The text was Isaiah 54, verses 2 through 3. We already read those this morning, but I want you to hear them again, because this was the text that he preached that day. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Now, remembering what we learned earlier, this is about the expansion of the church on a global scale. And William Carey was looking around at all of these Christians in England and all the Christians in Europe, and he was saying, look, there's an entire world out there that has not heard the gospel. We need to get up and go. And the people did go. And that sermon sparked a revolution in the European and American churches to send out missionaries across the face of the globe. And now we see those nations to where the gospel has gone, now sending missionaries of their own back to places like America and Great Britain. That sermon impacted the world in an incredible way. Most sermons are forgotten. In fact, William Carey's deathless sermon has all but been lost to history itself. All that we have left of that sermon are six words. His first point was three words, expect great things. And his second point was three words, attempt great things. Later on, this would be slightly expanded into the common missionary slogan, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Charles Spurgeon loved this saying so much that he had it emblazoned in massive letters right behind where he would preach so that every time he was speaking, people would look up and they would see those words. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Christians, have great expectations. In Charles Dickens' novel that I mentioned earlier, everyone had great expectations. They had expectations of gaining wealth or getting married to a particular person, whatever it might be, and all of them were disappointed. Remember Miss Havisham? Her life was destroyed because a man left her at the altar. And it seems that the moral of his story is just, hey, when you read this, you need to learn, don't get your hopes too high because they're going to be dashed. But brothers and sisters, we have been given promises, and one promise is that God has declared he is going to produce spiritual offspring. And that the offspring is going to come from every tribe and tongue and nation. And the people of God are going to possess the nations. Perhaps another part of the reason that we fail to proclaim the gospel is that we have stopped believing that God is going to change hearts. Perhaps we have failed to stand on the promise that heaven is going to be filled with people from every edge of this planet. Now perhaps we have falsely believed that the only way someone could be swayed by our message if we somehow become the perfect messenger or if we somehow present the message perfectly. But Jesus saves, not you. And your job is just to introduce them to the one that can save you. God's going to do great things. He will do great things. He will save his people. Just like Jesus told Paul, he said, I have many people in this city. I believe God has a people here on Long Island. And by his grace, we have the immense honor to carry the good news to them. To expect God to save sinners is one of his favorite things to do. William Carey preached this sermon, but then notice he also got on a boat and he went to India and spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel, mostly to people who didn't even want him there. And he expected great things from God, therefore he was able to attempt great things for God. And listen, that might be you. You might be called to go to another place. Maybe God wants you to get up and go to the foreign field. Maybe, what a glorious thing it would be if the Lord would raise up many from this body to go. Whether it be to an unreached people group in Indonesia or to an unreached people group in some neighborhood on Long Island when we send out a church plant. But you don't have to go anywhere to attempt great things for God. If you really expect great things of God, you will attempt great things for God right where you live and work today. So we must attempt great things because he is worthy. So expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word that you have given us in Isaiah 54. Particularly, God, I thank you for the promise that you will expand the kingdom, that you will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So God, we ask that you would work through us and in us. Give us internal fortitude that we would be strengthened in our inner man to go out to proclaim the good news with faith and we pray that you would bring the increase. Lord, there are many empty seats in this room today. I pray that you would fill every one of them with somebody who needs to hear the gospel. I pray that you would fill this room with people who trust in Jesus Christ, and that there would be a radical move towards salvation. I ask God that there would be people in this neighborhood and in this community who have seen this church their entire lives but have never given a thought to the gospel. I pray that, Lord, you would bring them in. Help us, Lord, to be good ambassadors for Christ, that we might carry the message to them and that they would be prepared to receive it. Please, Lord, give us good soil on which to cast these good seeds. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.